0: Boston, boys, I was bound to leave, so I came to California. Yay. Still, my home's across the Irish
1: Sea. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we love to tell stories about our own history. And always, our This Day in Histories and our historical segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Relatively few women went, with the initial stampedes, to new mineral discoveries throughout the American frontiers. And of those, even less went on their own. Here's Roger McGrath to tell us the story of a mining woman who sought her fortunes in a man's world and became one of the greatest women of the Old West. Dr. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger.
2: Known as the Frontier Angel or the Saint of the Sourdoughs, Nellie Cashman was one of the courageous women who helped make America's conquest of the frontier our Homeric era. She ranged far and wide on every mining frontier, from Arizona and Mexico in the south to Alaska and the Klondike in the far north. She has not forgotten. She's an inductee of the Alaska Mining Hall of Fame, the Arizona Women's Hall of Fame, and Arizona Women's Heritage Trail. There's also a Nellie Cashman day in Tombstone. She was a character in the 1950s TV series, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. And the U.S. Postal Service honored her with a stamp in 1994. Born in County Cork, Ireland in 1845, Nellie is only a teenager when she, her sister Frances, and her widowed mother leave Ireland and sail to Boston in 1860. When the Civil War erupts, a shortage of young men allows Nellie to find work as a bellhop in a hotel not many bellhops look like Nellie, a beautiful and finely featured young woman with waist-length brunette hair, flawless fair skin, and sparkling expressive eyes. Here's Jane Baker, author of the Nellie Cashman biography, Tough Nut Angel, the tale of a real-life Adventuress of the Old West.
3: There's a legend that says that Nellie met General Ulysses F. Grant and had a conversation with him that ended in him suggesting that she go to the West because she would fit better there.
2: With the end of the Civil War, the Cashmans decide it's California for them. They arrive in San Francisco after sailing on steamships and crossing through the jungles and mountains of Panama on burros. Francis, or Fanny, as she's called, marries Irishman Tom Cunningham and starts a family. Nellie is off for mining strikes in Arizona, Nevada, and Idaho. In each new mining camp, she establishes a boarding house and a restaurant, builds it into a profitable enterprise, then sells out and moves on. Any miner down on his luck eats for free at Nellie's, and Nellie is always ready to grub stake a prospector she also has a talent for the healing arts and nurses many an injured or ill minor back to health. Here's a story of the Old West, Marshall Trimble, otherwise known as the Will Rogers of Arizona. Nellie
4: took great pride in the fact that she never turned away a hungry miner who had no money to pay for his meal or board. And when there was a need to raise money, whether it was for churches and schools or hospitals or a family of a miner killed in a mining accident, Nellie would head downtown for the saloons or the brothels with her hat turned upside down and she always left with a hat full of money. The source of those donations never bothered her. She said one time, whether the money comes from an upstanding citizen or a member of an outlaw faction makes no difference to me and the money doesn't know the difference either.
2: In 1874, Nellie joins a party of 200 Nevada miners headed for the Cassiar Mountains in northern British Columbia, near the border of the Yukon. The region is practically unknown and all but inaccessible, but the miners, including Nellie, the only female, reach their destination and strike gold on the upper reaches of the Stikine River and along its major tributary, Dease Creek. It's only fall when winter comes to the Cassiars. The miners are caught unprepared for the heavy snowfalls and severe cold. As their supplies dwindle, dozens begin falling ill with scurvy. Their beloved Nellie is not among them. She left earlier for a vacation in Victoria on Vancouver Island. When Ruard reaches Victoria, the miners are entrapped by snow and ice and suffering terribly Nellie purchases 2,000 pounds of supplies, including plenty of lime juice, hires six men, and heads for Deese Creek. At Wrangell, Alaska, U.S. Customs officers try to dissuade her from what they term a mad trip. But Nellie pushes on. When the commander of Fort Wrangell hears that a woman is headed into the Cassiars, he dispatches a lieutenant with a squad of soldiers to rescue her. They don't catch up with Nellie until high up on the Stickeen River. Nearly exhausted and suffering greatly from the cold, the soldiers find Nellie camp comfortably on the ice of this frozen Stickeen. The lieutenant says she is cooking her evening meal by the heat of a wood fire and humming a lively air. The soldiers greatly accept her offer of hot coffee and food and return without her. The winter weather is so severe that people in coastal settlements think Nellie must have died. Here again is Jane Baker.
3: There was a small avalanche and Nellie's tent was buried 10 feet deep in the snow. Now when I heard about this I wondered how did she figure out how to get out of there. Well, if you spit, your spit will go down. So, what she did was spit and climb the opposite directions, and she, and she climbed out of the hole. She dug herself up out of it.
2: After 77 days on the trail and digging herself out of a snowslide, Nellie reaches Deese Creek upon hearing of Nellie's trek a newspaper called it an extraordinary feat by an indomitable female who possesses all the vivacity as well as the pushing energy inherent to her race with lime juice and good food Nellie nurses every one of the 200 snowed-in miners back to good health she is called
1: the angel of the cassiars and when we come back we'll continue with the story of Nellie Cashman here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with the story of Nellie Cashman.
2: Nellie stays in British Columbia for another three years, operating her businesses and raising money to build St. Joseph's Hospital in Victoria. In 1878, Nellie returns to San Francisco to visit her mother in the Cunninghams. Fanny and her husband now have three boys and two girls who love their Aunt Nell and are fascinated by her many adventures. A new mining strike soon sends Nellie to Tucson in Arizona Territory. She opens the Delmonico restaurant, the first business in Tucson owned by a woman. But in 1880, she heads for the new silver strike at Tombstone. She takes over operation of the Russ House Hotel and within weeks becomes part owner. One of the prospectors she feeds for free in grub is Edward Doheny who later becomes one of America's great oil men. Not long after Nellie begins operating the Russ uh, House Hotel, her sister's husband dies of tuberculosis. Nellie rushes to San Francisco and brings Fanny and her children to Tombstone to live in a home immediately behind the Russ House. In 1883, Fanny dies of tuberculosis, and Aunt Nell finishes a job of rearing the Cunningham children. When Nellie arrives in Tombstone, there is no Catholic Church. Here again is Marshall Trimble. In
4: 1880, there was an article in the Tombstone Epitaph that said, Nellie Cashman, the Irrepressible, started out yesterday to raise funds for the building of a Catholic Church. We don't know what success attended her first effort, but bet there's going to be a Catholic Church in Tombstone before many more days if Nellie has to build it herself.
2: She convinces the owners of the Crystal Palace Saloon—one of the owners is Wyatt Earp—to allow Sunday services to be held there until a church is built. Nellie leads the way in fundraising for what becomes the Sacred Heart Church. Nellie also helps build the first school in Tombstone and the first non-military hospital in Arizona, St. Mary's in Tucson. She also establishes a fund for prospectors injured in mining accidents and serves as treasurer of Tombstone's chapter of the Land League of Ireland. Nellie becomes one of the most influential and respected figures in Tombstone. Here again is Jane Baker.
3: During the time she was raising those kids in Tombstone, the gunfight at the OK Corral happened, and Nellie knew all of those players, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, all his brothers. She knew the mayor of Tombstone named John Clum, who thought she was absolutely wonderful and wrote uh, glowing reports of her.
2: John Clum, the publisher of the Tombstone epitaph and Tombstone's first mayor, said of Nellie, Her frank manner, her self-reliant spirit, and her emphatic and fascinating Celtic brogue impressed me very much and indicated that she was a woman of strong character and marked individuality. Here's Marshall Trimble with another story exemplifying Nellie's servant's heart.
4: During the Christmas season of 1883 in Bisbee, five men pulled a robbery, killing four people including a pregnant woman. They were caught, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to hang. Nellie took it upon herself to be their mother confessor. And just before the hanging, an entrepreneur had built a grandstand outside the high walls of the Tombstone Courthouse and was selling tickets to watch the hanging. The outlaws pleaded with Nellie not to let their hanging become a public spectacle. So the night before the event, Nellie and some friends arrived late late in the evening with tools in hand and they tore it down. After the five men were hanged the authorities had planned to donate their bodies to medical science but the condemned men protested to Nellie so she saw to it that they were given a proper burial and hired a guard to protect their graves for several days.
2: One day a dying Mexican stumbles in a tombstone and collapses at the entrance to the Russ house. Nellie has him carried inside and put on a bed. Before he dies, he mutters to her, Mule, go to Mule. Gold nuggets are found in his pockets. Nellie and some 20 tombstone miners are soon exploring the desert inland from Mule in Baja, California. The party runs out of water, and several of the men are on the verge of death from dehydration. The Phoenix Herald newspaper reports that Nellie and two others have died of thirst. Actually, Nellie is in better shape than any of the men. She volunteers to go off on her own, assuring her fellow prospectors a good angel will guide her to water. She crosses miles of scorching desert and miraculously comes upon an isolated mission. Not pausing to rest, she organizes a rescue party and helps drive burros loaded with goatskin sacks of water back to the miners. She arrives just in the nick of time. In 1895, at the age of 50, Nellie is still going strong when she arrives in Tucson. A newspaper reports, Yesterday, Tucson was visited by one of the most extraordinary women in America, Nellie Cashman. Whose name and face have been familiar to every important mining camp or district on the coast for more than twenty years. She rode into the town from Casa Grande on horseback, a jaunt that would nearly have prostrated the average man with fatigue. She showed no sign of weariness and went about town in that calm business like manner that belongs particularly to her. When news of the great strike in the Klondike reaches the states, Nellie is off for the far north immediately. She arrives in Dyee, Alaska during March 1898 and becomes one of the first women to take the steep Chilkoot Pass Trail.
4: At the summit on the Canadian border, the Mounties required each stampeder to pack 2,000 pounds of supplies or they wouldn't let them in. (laughs) I guess they didn't want American citizens to perish on Canadian soil. Well, 54-year-old Nellie, had to make several trips up the snowpack trail, but she was able to pass inspection. And then while waiting for the ice to thaw, she built a raft and then floated 500 miles down the Yukon River to reach
2: Dawson, braving a series of fierce rapids along the way. Nellie soon opens a restaurant and a grocery store, which includes a small library that becomes known as the Prospector's Haven of Rest. A newspaper reports her entrance into a saloon or dance hall is the signal for every man in the place to stand. Nellie has always done well, but she really strikes it rich in the Klondike. Her claim on Bonanza Creek pays her more than $100,000, equivalent to $3 million in today's money. Nellie continues living and prospecting in the Yukon and Alaska for another 25 years. She becomes an expert musher, more than once driving teams of dogs through the snow for hundreds of miles. Here's Marshall. In
4: 1923, at the age of 78, she mushed a dog sled team 350 miles in just 17 days. Newspapers all over Alaska carried the story of that intrepid lady named Nellie Cashman.
2: During the fall of 1924, her fabled health finally begins to fail. She dies at age seventy nine in January nineteen twenty five in St. Joseph's Hospital, which she had helped build nearly fifty years earlier.
4: Nellie was single all her life; she had several proposals. she was a very pretty woman, but she never married and when asked if she ever feared for her safety being the only woman amongst so many rough-hewn men she replied sweetly if you act like a lady men will always treat you like one
2: shortly before she dies a reporter asks her if she ever feared for her virtue while living in all-male mining camps or prospecting on wild frontiers she replies bless your soul no I never have had a word said to me out of the way The boys would sure see to it that anyone who ever offered to insult me could never be able to repeat the offense.
1: And thanks to Roger McGrath for that storytelling, and he's told so many good ones here on this show. Also, thanks to Greg Hengler. And Roger is a professor in Southern California, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. That's Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Nellie Cashman's story, and it's a remarkable one, here on Our American Stories. continue here with Our American Stories, and today our own Alex Cortez brings us the voice and story of Trudy Kathy White, the author of the book Climb Every Mountain. Here's Trudy with some stories.
5: You know, when I was a little girl, I used to look out into our backyard, and I saw this massive-looking mountain, and our family used to climb up this mountain and watch the sunset in and, and the springtime, in the summer, and so I've just always kind of been fascinated with mountains. For me, mountains have been a symbol of of God. It's just, when I'm in the mountains, I feel so close to the Lord. When I look at the mountains, I recognize the fact that they're so unchanging, They're always there. They were created by God. They're just a reflection of who God is in terms of his character, his faithfulness, and his love. You can just count on him in a changing world. He's the one thing that never changes. But at the same time, I look at these mountains and they remind me they're kind of a symbol of life's challenges, that life is hard and it's difficult. And when we're going through difficult times in our life, we feel like we're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And it seems like, you know, the, the more we climb, the harder it seems to get. And so I was in a really dark season of my life and I was kind of thinking in my mind, boy, does anybody else have to deal with life like this? Am I the only one? And then of course I realized, well, of course I'm not the only one. Everybody has problems and challenges and, and difficulties. And I thought, you know, I think I'll, I'll just want to write about personal stories of challenges that I've had and how I have found God to be faithful in every one of those.
1: And one of Trudy Kathy White's very first mountains was who she was.
5: Going off to camp as a little girl, my parents took me to overnight camp and I went to a girls camp, my brothers went to a boys camp. And I loved being at the camp, one, because there were mountains, but two, because I could kind of be who I was and everywhere I went, I was introduced as, you know, this is Trudy, the daughter of Jeanette and Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, or, you know, I was introduced as, this is the sister of Dan and Bubba Kathy, my two brothers, but at camp, I was just Trudy and it was good to be in an environment like that where I could kind of just be myself. When I got older, I served as the director for another camp for about 13 years, and when the campers were coming in for their first day at camp, parents were bringing them in. Parents would come up to me to introduce their children to me, and they would say, uh, you know who this is? This is Trudy. She's going to be your camp director. And then the next thing they would say is they said, but do you know who she really is? And then they would say, she's the daughter of the man who invented that Chick-fil-A that you like to eat. And that, that was just, you know, over and over and over. And when people would say that comment, do you know who she really is? I I would think in my mind, you know, I understand what they're saying, but that's not really who I am. So in my old self, I, you know, is to think about if I only look at what I do and who I am, it's not a very good way to kind of really understand my identity in terms of what I do. I, I do a lot. I'm a speaker. I'm an author. I'm a representative, which play family. And in terms of, you know, who I am, my goodness, that's a loaded question. I'm a grandmother, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm, I'm I'm a lot of things, but that doesn't define me. And when I stay right there with those questions and those type of answers, what it does for me is it causes me to play this comparison game. So I start looking at other people and I say, well, I can do this, but look at what they can do. Why can't I do what they do, or this is who I am. I wish I could be like this person. So we we compare ourselves all the time. And my mother used to tell us when we were children, she would stand at the back door as we would leave out for the day. And she had this little phrase, she would say, remember who you are and whose you are. And when we'd hear that statement when we were young, I don't think we really got it. But later on, it was so important that we realized who we are. Because you think about the fact that I am because he is. Because God made me. That's why I even exist. And you kinda of ask, well, am, am I am I my own? You know, do I have do I get to make my own choices? Do I get to, to make all the, the decisions for my life? And I realize, hey, you know, I'm really not my own. I've been bought with a price. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for me. So the Bible says that he paid the penalty for my sin. And actually who I am is all wrapped up in who God is and what he's doing through my life so it gives you a whole new perspective on life and you don't have to compare yourself to other people you just try to walk the walk that god has given you and understand how you're wired and how god has gifted you and recognize the fact that the value that comes in your life because of that
1: more mountains popped up for trudy especially when she and her husband decided to enter a foreign land
5: John and I were missionaries in Brazil for quite a while, and when we first went, we realized that we were going to have to learn Portuguese, and Portuguese is a difficult language, and it's hard enough, particularly if you're an adult, very, very difficult, and I remember one day, I just kind of had it, I thought, I I, I want to go back to the States, I can't do this, I, I went in my bedroom, I remember I shut the door, I was really, really angry with the Lord, and I began to cry, and I just poured my heart out to Him, and I said, Lord, You know, I'm trying so hard. I just can't do this. My daughter was four years old. You know, she's young and she's catching on to the language. And she got to the point where she could understand and and speak things better than I could. So I depended on her a lot. I took her with me. If you can imagine a four-year-old, long blonde hair, blue eyes. And here's this mother so dependent on her little girl to help her with the language. But one day we were shopping together and I couldn't think of the word that I needed to use. So I asked her, how to say the word. And she told me a word and I said it to the uh, Brazilian lady there. And the lady acted like she didn't understand me. And so I asked my daughter, Joy, I said, tell me that word one more time and let me say it to the lady. And she gave me a word. I said it. But the third time I looked around and my daughter was laughing because she just made up a word. It wasn't Portuguese at all. And I realized what she was doing. She thought, you know, this would be a fun game to play with my mom. She doesn't know the language very well, and she'll repeat anything that I tell her. So So she made up a word, and it was not funny at the moment. In fact, I was totally embarrassed. I, I thought she was being extremely disrespectful and I put her in the car. I got in the car and and we left and I went home. And That was when I had this moment, this encounter with the Lord. I, I put her in a room and I went to a room and I tried to hash this thing out with the Lord because I, I told him, I said, you know, my own daughter's turned her back on me. I don't know what I'm going to do now. You know, it's like, I don't have any more help. I don't have any more resources. And then the Lord kind of hits me over the head and says, Trudy, you know, I'm the one you need to depend on, you know, not your daughter. I go back to that moment many times, even now. And I'm reminded that, okay, I'm encountering something that I think is going to be difficult or it's going to stretch me, but I'm going to depend on the Lord because I feel like this is the thing I need to be doing. And I think that's an awesome place to live your life because I think God really wants us to step out of our zone every once in a while and do some things that maybe we've not tried before and allow him to show what he can do through us. So that's amazing. I think that's a big part of this idea of just walking day-to-day in a personal relationship with the maker of this
2: world.
1: And you're listening to Trudy Kathy White. And by the way, she's author of Climb Every Mountain, which you can buy at ClimbEveryMountain.com. And what a unique voice. And my goodness, she was mad at her daughter when she shouldn't have. Her daughter didn't disrespect her. She was just having a little fun with Mom. And if Mom had had a better sense of humor and was in the space that she needed to be, she could have enjoyed it but that's where she came to depend on her relationship with God to get her through that moment to set her straight. And for so many Americans, myself included, that relationship with God is primal. And Christians, Jews, Muslims, it's a primal relationship. And then for all the nonbelievers out there, well, we tell your stories too, and we're sensitive to all of them because this is a country filled with all kinds of good people trying to do good things in their own way. And my goodness, Trudy Kathy White is just such a person. I mean, going to Brazil to do mission work and help people in need. This isn't just a casual relationship with witnessing to her, her God. This is honoring her God and we need to see and hear more stories about what people do that's positive because of their faith. Trudy Kathy White's walk, her stories, her voice. It all continues here on our American stories. stories, and Trudy Kathy White, who's sharing some honest and vulnerable stories from her book, Climb Every Mountain.
5: You know, health is something that we all really appreciate and value and are blessed. We've got good health. But, you know, John was feeling super great. Went to the doctor and got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a hard blow Um, when, when John got that news, we realized that, his dad's health was failing. And in fact, just a few weeks later, his dad passed away and John was facing surgery for his cancer. And and it was a really hard time. And then after the surgery, John thought, well, that's it. I'm, I'm cured and it won't happen again. But sure enough, you know, two years later, he was diagnosed with cancer again, he had to go through radiation treatment. And that was when things seemed like, you know, really gloomy for us. It was like, OK, this is probably going to be it. will John be around very long. And it wasn't a good time at all for us. Yeah, you know, every day, John was going for radiation treatment. And I would ride with him in the car. And we had a little book that we read together, riding together to the hospital each time. And then when we would go and sitting in the waiting room there, you know, you begin to see the same people over and over. you've got to go every day. We were there Monday through Friday for six solid weeks. and and to begin to see some of the same faces. And I, I kept a little book with me that just was my journal that I would write in from time to time. And occasionally when I would sit there while John was back getting radiation treatment, I would just kind of look around the room and see people that were there. And I began to try to use that time rather than feeling sorry for myself and thinking I wish I was somewhere else and not here. I began to try to use that time to pray for the people around me and even got to sometimes have conversations with them, but I would begin to document those times of sitting in the room, and so I put those in my book to try to help people see. These are some of the things that were kind of going through my mind. On day four, I wrote down, you know, emotions seem heavy, mostly because of the unknown. I'm thankful to cast all my cares on the Lord because I'm confident that He cares for me. And my prayer was, you are My God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. And then I began to, you know, I I didn't write for a few days, and then we got to day seven after having such a heavy heart. On day seven, we were there. I wrote, beginning to recognize the same people coming in for their treatments. I'm finding myself drawn to pray for those who are here. Some are all alone. I'm thankful to walk this journey with John, whether convenient or inconvenient. It's good to affirm my commitment to him when we got married, in sickness or in health. I do. Just two days later, on day number nine, yesterday a man sat by me waiting on his wife. She's getting both radiation and chemo treatment. They stay at the Hope Lodge in the Atlanta area and they return home each weekend only to find grass to cut bills to pay he told me that they're both so very tired my prayer lord meet the needs of this dear couple give them a sense of your hope today give him patience and love as he cares for his wife sustain them today so what you see happening in my journaling is that you know this particular day nine i'm already beginning to kind of shift my focus to other people Uh, which is so healthy for us to try to do when we're going through hard times to look at what are the needs of other people. I may be needy right now, but boy, there are other people around me that are needy as well. So when I get to day 11, whether in suffering or success, in strength or weakness, in greatness or defeat, His grace sustains. He gives the victory. Next day, Day 12. Finding today to be hard, not for John, but for me. Getting up, getting dressed, going downtown over and over, eventually, seems tiring. Prayer. Please let me be John's number one supporter. Let me keep my eyes fixed on you. Give us laughter in the journey, joy along the way increased faith in you for whatever the future holds. Day 38. Which is down the road a bit. The end. It's now in sight. The days have really been long. But thank you God. You have used our children and our friends to offer so much support through prayers, texts, cards, calls, words of encouragement and promises from your word. Today, I cling to Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I will not leave you nor forsake you. looking back and John's actually doing really well now his cancer is in remission and he's back at almost 100% in in work and everything but going through that time it was interesting because it caused us to have some really important necessary conversations we had to talk about okay what would happen if John passed away and how would i manage life and you know we would talk to our children about this and you know those are things you don't necessarily feel like you want to really talk about but It's very interesting that we all plan our days, we plan our calendars, we kind of talk about what we're going to do next week or even a month from now, and we really aren't even assured of life uh, for even the next day, and yet we plan for it. But we rarely talk about death, and we know that death is a reality and it will happen. We don't know when it will happen, but we are assured that we are not here on this earth forever. And so we talked about the things that we probably should have talked about maybe even sooner. But when you're facing the reality that death could be knocking at your door, then it kind of forces you, I guess, to begin to have those kind of conversations. And so out of those conversations come some really sweet, sweeter and richer relationships, I guess you could say. I know that John and I, you know, we've been married 41 years, but wow, we are so much further down the road now just because of the season we've walked through. I wouldn't ask to walk through it, but having been through it, God has used it to strengthen our marriage for sure. I would encourage parents that, you know, when you have a difficulty you're facing, whether it's death or it might even be a wayward child, and it's tough on you as a parent, the best thing a mom and dad can do is stick together and not let that difficulty pull you apart. Because it is easy to kind of withdraw, and you've got to pull together in your time of difficulty. So I look back on it and I say... God has used it to pull our family together to be even closer now. So then we turn around and then both my parents have passed away. So those are heavy things to deal with back to back. And I remember just, you know, the fact that they were gone and sitting and thinking, okay, now what, I, I really am orphaned. I don't have a mother or a dad. And it was a season of about three, four straight years of having that kind of loss in our family that was very challenging. It's interesting when... I was just um, 10 years younger, 10 years ago. I used to think, well, it shouldn't be that big a deal if your parents pass away, if you're already an adult, and particularly if they've lived a long life. That shouldn't be a really heavy loss. And I was kind of shocked just to how hard it was to here I am in my 60s and my mom and dad are gone. It, It feels very heavy. And I would not have really understood that from other friends. In earlier years, if they told me their parents passed away, I would think, well, you know, they're probably dealing okay with it because, after all, they're adults anyway. And it's not true. So it's it's hard to really understand what somebody else is going through if you haven't walked through it or at least in some form or fashion experienced yourself. Grief is real, and we have to be very sensitive to that for people when they're walking through and what we should and maybe what we even shouldn't say. Oftentimes, less is best. The less you say, sometimes people just need an arm around the shoulder, a pat on the back, or just a real sincere, I'm so sorry. And a lot of times they don't need to hear a lot of words. They just need to know that they are there. And just as we talk about when really we walk through grief, it's important that you remember that God is with you. I think the presence of people around your presence is very powerful, and many people avoid being with somebody maybe who's walking through grief because they say, I just don't know what to say to them. You know, it's kind of awkward. I don't, I don't know how to carry on the conversation with them because I know that they're dealing with something that's very difficult. And yet the very thing that they need might be just your presence, just to be there with them. You don't have to really carry on a lot of conversation. Oftentimes it's just the little things that we do that can make such a big difference to encourage other people. My dad often said, there's an easy way to know if people need encouragement. And he said, if they're breathing, they need encouragement. And so, you know, we're all living life and we all need someone to encourage us. And so if we can find a way to encourage people around us through a word or an action or just our own presence, I think it's so important and it brings some healing to the grief that people are going through.
1: And great job on that, Alex. You've been listening to Trudy Kathy White And my goodness, if you're breathing, you need encouragement. What great wisdom and words from a father, and what true words. And what a walk that Trudy had to walk, not only with her husband suffering from cancer, but then losing two parents as well. And it's true, no matter how old you get, losing both of your parents means, well, there's no one to talk to and call up when you need some help and encouragement from those wise voices who had loved you all those years. And by the way, what she did in that hospital ward, how many of us go into that ward and just put our heads down, but that she looked around and looked for opportunities for grace and love and mercy and and camaraderie, Uh, just beautiful. And what a beautiful voice, a much-needed voice in this world, in this time. Trudy Kathy White, her story. By the way, the book is Climb Every Mountain. Go to ClimbEveryMountain.com. Trudy Kathy White's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Indeed, our next story comes to us from a listener in Tampa, Florida, who follows the show on WHFS 1010, and also on podcast. Here's Jeanette's story. Well, it's actually the story of her father, Angelo Constantine.
6: Oh, how we silently groaned when our dad got started on his war stories. He would go for hours telling us every little detail. If our eye contact drifted off, he would tap us to bring us back to full focused attention. Sometimes he would digress. What was that cook's name? Anderson? Sergeant Jones? No, he wasn't the cook. And who was the mess officer now? We would listen as Dad made his way back to the main storyline. Lipon, Greek word for so then. He would say, to make a long story short, and we would think, too late. But we always continued listening respectfully because through these stories, we got a glimpse of our dad's heart and that meant the world to us. And the best part, at the end of the story, he would jump up and go prepare an amazing meal for us, showing his love for us through his actions. Born on August 17, 1917 in New York City, his father and pregnant mother had just emigrated from Greece and he was born shortly after their arrival. He was the firstborn of eight siblings. His family moved to Norfolk, Virginia in 1919 in hopes of finding a job in the bustling Navy town. Growing up in the early 20s, charming little Angelo would stand outside his dad's restaurant on Navy payday directing sailors to where they could find a good time, hoping to get a small tip so he could contribute to his family needs. You see, dad would tell us, the restaurant never made any money. It was enough to feed us and the patrons, but never enough to save anything. That's why I had to work for other Greeks, to bring in some money. I started young. Did I ever tell you about how I roasted peanuts for Mr. Gallinitas? Ten or twelve years old, hotter than Hades, with this big vat over gas flames. I'd turn that sucker, and then when the peanuts were cooled on the conveyor belt, I'd bag them up in ten-pound bags to deliver around the restaurants on my bike. Luckily, the leftover peanuts... I got to bag up and sell them on the street corners for five cents a bag. That was my pay. Wet, hot, cold, in all kinds of weather, there I was while others were out playing ball. Later in high school, Angelo worked at a drugstore soda shop. Before school, he opened up and made breakfast for the local businessmen and returned after school to work as a soda jerk. Angelo overbecame the shame and embarrassment of waiting on those more fortunate classmates by instead turning the preparation of food into an art. Angelo began his military career in the National Guard of Virginia. A group of his Greek buddies were already signed up, and he would tell us, Now, let me see, there was... Tony Cahayas, Jimmy Theodosis, Nick Bertakis, Pete Pappas, and my best friend, that lousy George Bacalus, he didn't sign up. He stayed back and ran the hot dog stand. Angelo wanted to serve his country and bring in some extra money to support his family. By this time, his father had passed away, leaving him to care for his widowed mother, who spoke very little English, and his eight younger siblings, seven of whom were sisters. In June 1941, the unit was called to active duty and was assigned to the 176th Field Artillery Battalion. Dad was able to purchase a modest home for his family, and he sent his entire paycheck to his mother keeping only a few dollars for himself each month. While working on a school project, his grandson Sam interviewed his Papu about his World War II days. Just notice the details of his answer. Before we went to Europe, we were sent to Fort George G. Meade near Baltimore, Maryland. Fort Meade was a big army camp under construction We had plain wooden barracks, two floors, and special rooms for the senior members. The higher rank you were, the more plush your room was. Now, it it may have been those plush rooms that inspired Dad to apply to officer candidate school. Getting accepted was a huge turning point in his life. On November 26, 1942 our dad would proudly tell us. Angelo Constantine proudly received his commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Army. For the first time in his life, he was now giving orders and his confidence soared.
1: And you're listening to the story of Angelo Constantine. And my goodness, to be born in 1917 means you're being born and living straight through the heart of the Great Depression. So what he knew as a young man, and what so beautifully is captured here by his daughter Jeanette, is this guy knew nothing but work and hard times, and finally through the military gets to serve, gets to become a commissioned officer, and finally for the first time in his life, as she said, he's giving orders, he's not taking them. And my goodness, as we think about today's times and how, quote, hard they are, you just gotta laugh. Because what this guy lived through, what the Greatest Generation lived through, was the Great Depression and World War II. Pretty tough. And listen to the ebullence in the voice and the and the positive nature of this story. And we're going to hear more of this remarkable listener's story, Jeanette's story of her father Angelo Constantine. Their stories, both of them, here on our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and Jeanette's story. She's sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. And again, Jeanette's from Tampa, Florida, and she listens to our show on WHFS 1010. Let's continue with this remarkable story. Dad is now about to enter, well, the greatest war, not just of the 20th century, but of all time, the war to save civilization from the Nazi menace.
6: In a letter to his future bride, he writes of his first assignment as an officer. As to what I'm doing and where I'm stationed, I couldn't ask for better. I'm at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I've been assigned to a colored regiment of heavy artillery, and everything is working out swell. I'm gradually getting used to being a second lieutenant, although down deep inside of me, I'm still the same old fellow you used to know. Imagine being a brand new officer as a Greek-American immigrant whose life up to that point had shared many of the same experiences as his all-black enlisted troops. Although he rarely spoke of it, as a Greek, he also had experienced discrimination. On Christmas Eve, 1942, Angelo volunteered to stay on base and pull duty so that others could go home for Christmas. In his letter, he writes, That's one thing this man's army has taught me, and that is to think of the others in my shoes. We have all tried to make the men under us feel at home, even if it did inconvenience us. You know... Like most kids growing up, we didn't realize these qualities in our dad. We saw him more as our own personal, private drill sergeant. However, in hindsight, he taught us through his example. And for that, we are now ever so thankful. During this time, dad signed up for many different training opportunities. He went to the Chemical Warfare School the baker's and cook's course, and flight school. Here are three of his stories that are family treasures. The Night on the Town. After passing a tough inspection at the Chemical Warfare School, the soldiers got leave, and Angelo went with a couple of his buddies out on the town. He was pulled with four other G.I.s to be part of the floor show that evening. They gave the audience a good laugh by doing a chorus line kick to some great swing music. But just as the others were leaving the stage, the female held Angelo back and asked him to dance with her. Dad would say, Honestly, I bet my face burned red, but I didn't get cold feet. I could see my friends at the table laughing their heads off. And well, I decided to do the best I could and be a good sport about it. And just as soon as I heard the orchestra snap into a really hot, rug hunting tune, you should have seen me go to town. Honestly, I couldn't help myself. My feet just danced and lo and behold, you should have seen the surprise on that girl's face when I started dancing like that. And wham! more the audience went wild. It was an awful noise they made. Gosh, I never enjoyed myself so much in ages. Honestly, the way she looked at me when I started spinning, as in proper jitterbugging, and all the time she probably thought that I would two-step and she would just have fun making me look foolish. For us kids... Hearing about this and seeing a different side of our hard-working dad was a really special story. The mess hall story. He told us, after the baker's cooks course, they liked me and so they kept me on at the school as an officer in charge. We would take food out to the soldiers while they were training out in the field. Good food like beef stew, baked beans, ham, fresh green beans. You know, there were these poor folks from North Carolina standing nearby, watching the soldiers as they ate. When everyone was done and the cooks were cleaning up, they put the leftovers in the trash. The poor folks started picking through the trash to get food out. I heard my troops laughing. When I caught wind of why... I was fit to be tied. I called for the staff sergeant and demanded an explanation. Then the staff sergeant tried to challenge me. And I said, from now on, you're ordered to offer all the leftovers to those people. Dad told of his sorrow as he watched them go through the trash, picking out the baked beans. He never forgot the value of compassion for human suffering, and that we all could one day be that hungry person digging through the garbage. Flight school. The story of Dad's disappointment in not getting his flight wings was first told to his 16-year-old grandson, Sam. We were all shocked. We never knew Dad had gone to flight school. We discovered that Dad's fear of heights did not sit well with his flight instructor's mission. He told Sam, On my first solo mission, I hit the ground and bounced 20 feet in the air. They gave you a chance to explain yourself, and I flunked that too. So I flunked the course. Hearing the disappointments in Dad's voice from failing the course saddened us, yet it helped us to understand his life choices a little bit better. It was also a great example for his two grandsons and his son-in-law as they faced their own trials while serving in the Army. In January 1944, Angelo was shipped out to England, and after D-Day, he was assigned the officer in charge of the convoy trucks, which carried the big guns. In the middle of the night, he walked alone in all kinds of weather down unknown roads using only a map and a compass to search for the intersections, going from checkpoint to checkpoint with orders in hand to give them any changes in the route that the trucks would take the next day. The army could not use radios for fear of the German interception. What tenacity that must have taken for our father to travel down those frozen dark roads wondering if any minute a German soldier would be there waiting. Yet knowing that this small mission, a message to the checkpoints, could change the course of a battle if not delivered. And remember George Backless, Angelo's Greek buddy who could not enlist, He ran a small hot dog stand in Norfolk by the city hall and so he wrote to George saying, What I wouldn't give right now for some backless hot dogs. I bet I could eat six of them. As soon as George read Angela's letter, he took six hot dogs hot off the grill, put them in buns with the works, mustard, ketchup, onions, and chili, boxed them up and immediately mailed them to Angelo. Several months later, Angelo received a package from home, excitedly thinking they might be some of his mom's Greek pastries. He opened it and saw six smelly, moldy, backless hot dogs. Angelo would laugh each time he told this story. These hot dogs are like George rotten to the core you know growing up we thought dad was not a real world war ii hero because of his stories were not like the stories of the heroes on tv but we were sure proud when he told us about capturing a german soldier
1: and you've been listening to jeanette sharing the story of her father angelo constantine One of our many really beautiful listener-generated stories. And my goodness, there were so many heroes overseas and here. All a part of the effort. From the mess hall, straight to logistics. People risking their lives, supporting the guys on the front line. And she's right. There are so many different kinds of heroism. And the kind on TV, it's not the only kind. Also that a father would share his disappointments and his failures with his kids. The best thing you can do in life, folks. Share those disappointments. And those failures with your kids, because they're going to have them, too. And you live beyond them. You live beyond them. Jeanette's story, her father's story, Angelo Constantine's, continues here on Our American Stories.
3: Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
1: continue with our American stories and Jeanette sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. Let's continue.
6: Growing up, we thought dad was not a real World War II hero because of his stories were not like the stories of the heroes on TV. But we were sure proud when he told us about capturing a German soldier. Angelo and two other soldiers were on a recon mission where they would go ahead of the convoy to make sure the area was cleared of Germans after the town had been secured. As they came into the village, Angelo went to the outhouse and upon opening the door saw a German officer. Our dad said he didn't know who was more afraid. But he, Angelo, had the advantage, and so he captured the soldier. The German, in broken English, begged Angelo not to shoot because he had a wife and family back home. He could see the German officer shaking and sweating, so he took the Luger and turned him over to the authorities. But before that, he took a photograph of capturing the soldier. After the Battle of the Bulge, leave was granted to his unit. Dad had two weeks, so he did what many G.I.s did at that time. He got married to his longtime Greek beauty, Athanasia. However, upon his return to Europe, he soon found out that he was separated from his unit and had to make his way back to Germany on his own for fear that he would be declared AWOL. He made his way into central Germany by meeting up with a European mailman. Angelo chatted and discovered that the mailman was going straight to where he was headed, which was near the Czechoslovakian border. So he bummed a ride with him. Finally, after a little over two months, Angelo found his unit at Bivouac. So he went up to central headquarters. The officer in charge of the camp said, What the hell are you doing here, Lieutenant Constantine? I was ordered to remove you from my roster months ago. While Angelo was waiting for orders to return to the States, he was given the job of a lifetime by the commanding officer to transport some crates to the finance office headquarters in Frankfurt. Here is Angelo retelling the story on the Larry Glick show sometimes in the early 80s. Okay, pick it up. Hello.
7: Hello. What's your first name?
8: My name is Angelo. Angelo. Right. You were in, what was your what
7: was your function in World War 2? Tell me that story, Angelo.
8: I was with an artillery unit, and when uh, we had arrived in Germany, uh, this was uh, right after the uh, the armistice was over, Hi. I was suddenly given some orders by my commanding officer. Wait, right out of the blue sky, he said, I want you to take a truck and some crates and go to Frankfurt. But I took a driver and a weapons carrier. They loaded three, three if I recall, uh, wooden boxes, crates, And uh, he said, well, when you get out of town, about three or four miles, open the first envelope, which I did. And he gave me my designation as the finance officer at Supreme Allied Headquarters in Frankfurt. And uh, we continued on. It was about an hour's drive from where we were camped. And I turned over the crates to him and I got a receipt. I had no idea what was in the crates. They didn't open them in front of me. We got back in, my driver and I got back into the weapons carrier and hit it back, and I opened up the letter, and lo and behold, it, <laughs> the contents of those crates were Dutch guilders, gold bars, jewels.
7: What if you'd opened that up? What if you'd decided, what rank were you at that time?
8: Second lieutenant.
7: <laughs> Second lieutenant. Yes. If, uh, if you were the inquisitive type, you said, I wonder what's, those, those bars, those crates are pretty heavy. Uh-huh. I wonder, I might take a peek in. I've got a hammer. I'll open up that crate and see what's inside. <laughs> and then you saw it inside, Lieutenant. What do you think? You you think you would have taken a couple of gold trinkets?
8: Um, I don't think so. Not, I really don't. Uh, no, I, my I, curiosity was was peaked, but I had no idea it was that worthy.
7: You, you knew that it wasn't farm tools.
8: No, I knew that.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and what, were you, what rank were you discharging?
8: That's first
7: lieutenant. First, uh, where, where did you get your commission? Uh, Fort Warren, Fort, uh, Fort Sill. Fort Sill.
8: Right. or oh, you're
7: an artilleryman. man.
6: Right. Well,
7: you're all right, Angelo. And uh, have you had a good life? A uh, very nice one.
6: During the war, Angelo lost his beloved mother. So after the war, when he returned home to a new bride, he had three younger siblings in his care. Gone were his hopes for his future, replaced with the burden of the lifelong responsibility of providing for his family. Dad began working for a Greek businessman, driving a Miller beer truck, and worked dutifully for 38 years, putting in 10 to 15-hour days with a minimum pay and benefits. His natural charm and and the salesmanship skills he had developed as a young lad served him well over the years. He was well-respected as a businessman and was often mistaken as the owner of the company due to his dedication. Another extraordinary accomplishment is that Dad never missed Sunday church services, and he volunteered thousands of hours cooking for Greek festivals and Boy Scouts and weddings and baptisms and funerals. He faithfully loved his wife of 60-plus years and raised four children. He showed his love through action in small ways, as often as he could. He believed one did not become a man until joining the army. He believed in humbling yourself without whining or complaining, working hard and given his all. His pride was such that he wanted each job done thoroughly and correctly, and there was only one way to do it, the right way. He was this way not because of ego, but because he always wanted to give his best effort. Mostly Dad's stories reflected how he lived his life by placing the needs of others before his own. He wanted us to learn this through his stories. So often in today's society, we fail to honor someone like Angelo, a first generation immigrant who asked nothing from his country, from family or from friends, and he gave everything he could. Yes, one might say he was just an ordinary World War II soldier, but those who knew him would describe him as a remarkable man and father.
1: And what a beautiful story, and thank you so much to Jeanette, honoring your father this way. How many of us can tell a story in this detail, with this detail, about our own parents? And maybe this should inspire all of us to be able to do the same. There's just so much here. Um, Never missed a Sunday at church volunteered relentlessly. He was so well regarded as a businessman, often mistaken as the owner of that company because he was so dedicated to that company. He believed in humbling himself. What a crazy idea. And not complaining. And by the way, there was only one way to do things, according to Angelo, and that was the right way. And by the way, we know those people in our lives and they're a pain in the butt, right? But they're not really. Because he's not doing it because he's an egomaniac. That's not why he wanted things done the right way. because you're supposed to and because hard work well god wants us to work hard and if you don't believe in god well my goodness you should still believe in the efficacy of hard work because my goodness what's the alternative what is the alternative what a beautiful story again a beautiful listener story jeanette from whfs 1010 in tampa florida her father's story angelo constantine's here on our american stories continue here on Our American Stories. Dawn Raffle was a fiction editor for many years. She helped launch O, the Oprah Magazine, where she served as executive articles editor for seven years. She subsequently held a senior-level at-large position at Reader's Digest. Raffle's most recent book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies was awarded a 2019 Christopher Award for books that affirm the highest values of the human spirit. Let's take a listen to this wonderfully unique American story.
0: Hello, my name is Dawn Raffle. I'm the author of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. I spent about four years going down a rabbit hole of research to find out what was the deal with one of the strangest stories in American medical history. So early in the 20th century, um, if you were to go to Coney Island, um, the people's playground, also known affectionately as Sodom by the Sea for its hijinks, or if you were to go to Atlantic City, which at the time was America's honeymoon capital, or if you were to go to, say, a theme park in Chicago or Minneapolis, you would pass an exhibit that would say, infant incubators with real living babies. And there would be a barker outside and you could pay a quarter to go see living premature babies being cared for in incubators. So when I first stumbled across this, I thought, how is this even possible? Is this the most crazy exploitation of human life? Is this like a commodification of babies? Well, it turned out to be... Even stranger than that, there was almost no care for premature babies available in American hospitals at that time. So if somebody had a baby and a tiny one, two or three pounds, their best hope was to take the baby home and maybe um, wrap it in blankets, keep it warm next to the oven or the fire, and hope for the best. And often the best was not very good. Along came this man, Dr. Martin Arthur Cooney, who was behind all of these sideshows. Who was he? He claimed that he was a European doctor that he had trained in Leipzig and Berlin. That, That would have been some of the best medical training in the world at that time. And then he was the protege of a great French doctor who was conveniently dead at the time that Martin Cooney was making these claims. And that he then came to the United States for the very first time in 1898 for the Omaha World's Fair to show this new technology, the infant incubator. Now, his story becomes very odd, because apparently, according to him, he was just seized with the desire to relocate across an ocean. Seriously? Why? Once you've seen Omaha, you can never return to Paris? I think I will give up my really prestigious institutional affiliation with one of the world's great doctors in France so that I can practice medicine on Coney Island next to the the shoot-the-shoots and the alligator boy. Okay, it's not too much of a spoiler to say Martin Cooney really wasn't a real doctor. However, he knew how to save preemies. And he was willing to do it when the medical establishment really couldn't and wouldn't do it. So here's this guy who actually did pick up a European protocol. He hired fantastic nurses. And let me tell you, in a neonatal ICU, the nurses are always the secret sauce. That has a lot to do with whether or not the babies survive. He had these great machines, the new incubators. He also offered the most meticulous care, very low nurse to patient ratio, insistent on feeding these babies breast milk only. If the mother couldn't provide it, he hired wet nurses. The premises were immaculate. He was a big believer in really loving these babies, love them, hug them, show them real human care. This was very much at odds with anything that was available in hospitals for a long time. At the time, the hospitals really didn't have the resources to have enough equipment. They didn't have enough nurses. They didn't have enough space. Hospitals were sometimes not all that clean. They couldn't afford to hire wet nurses. They would feed the babies formula that was not as successful. So here is this Dr. Cooney, fake doctor, saving children over the years by the thousands, desperately trying to persuade the medical establishment. And yes, admittedly, because this guy was charging admission to the public, he was becoming very wealthy himself. I don't really think he saw a conflict between doing good in his own personal self-interest. There were people who faulted him for that. But he continued, and you would think the medical establishment would catch on and say, hey, you know, here's this guy, he's getting real results. He's saving 85% of these children who should be considered pretty much doomed. However, there were a few things going on one of which unfortunately was the american eugenics movement which was really about taking the new science of genetics and using it to try to manipulate the human gene stock it ended up in absolutely horrific abuses including the involuntary sterilization of tens of thousands of americans and the decision to sometimes deliberately withhold care from infants who had severe disabilities, um, and it didn't directly... Target premature babies, but it did cast a shadow over their prospects. There was really a sense of, you know, why do we need to care for these weaklings, these feeble babies? We have more than enough hungry mouths to feed. The mother will have another child, and so on. So the resources were just lacking. Over time, Martin Cooney had one great friend in Chicago, Dr. Julius Hess. And Julius Hess was really everything Martin Cooney wasn't. He was a real doctor. He did have real credentials. He was very highly respected. And he began listening to Dr. Cooney, learning from him, taking his practices into the hospital setting, and desperately, desperately, struggling for funding, struggling to get people to listen to him. He published the first book on taking care of preemies in this country in 1922, in which he dedicated his book to Dr. Cooney. But something that really turned the tide was in 1933, at the bottom of the Depression, there was a World's Fair in Chicago. Chicago. It's not the famous World's Fair that most people think of with the Ferris wheel and that's featured in the book Devil in the White City. This was a Depression-era World's Fair, and Dr. Cooney and Dr. Hess joined forces to have a big incubator show. It was right out on the midway with the sideshows and other midway attractions. Meanwhile, in the Hall of Science, you had a eugenics exhibit, but the actual work of saving lives was happening on the midway. And there was so much publicity for this particular show that it did begin to turn the tide. Chicago became the first city with a really unified public health policy in order to take care of preemies it would eventually become the model for the rest of the country. So, if we really want to look at it, there are many people beginning to believe that, yes, you know, this phony doctor with the sideshow is actually the rightful father of American neonatology. He saved thousands and thousands of people. Some of them are still alive. I've talked to a bunch of them. I will tell you, not a one of them feels annoyed that they were displayed in a sideshow. Not a one of them feels like they were exploited in any way. And not a one of them is irritated that he wasn't a real doctor. They feel only gratitude that this man saved their life. And they went on to have wonderful lives and have children and have grandchildren. Without Martin Cooney, they probably would not be here. So we sometimes owe a debt to people who work really far outside the lines, and Martin Cooney is one of them. Another really interesting thing about Dr. Cooney is that when hospitals began introducing incubators, and it, it really became very widespread after World War II when American healthcare in general just got better and better. That first generation of preemies treated in hospitals with incubators, a great many of them very sadly went blind, and they couldn't understand what was going on. And Martin Cooney, by that point, was already retired, but they did go to ask him, why is it that none of the babies you treated lost their eyesight? And frankly, he really didn't know um, Well, he wasn't a doctor, and nobody knew why this was going on. The truth was the hospitals were pumping too much oxygen into the machines. That was causing the blindness. And Martin Cooney, although he pumped oxygen into the machines, it was never as much. And hey, he was a showman. So he would actually take the babies out of the machines and show them off. And because of that, because of that, their eyesight was preserved. So, again, just a little piece of lost medical history. And I hope you enjoy this story. Thank you.
1: And that was Dawn Raffle, And thanks, Dawn, for that really interesting story. And so much work is done outside the boundaries of whatever the establishment thinks in almost any field. And lives were saved. It was interesting that she got to talk to and meet some of these preemies who became, well, parents themselves. And not one of them was upset or well, we felt exploited, and not one of them cared that he wasn't a real doctor. Because, well, he saved their lives. The strange story of Dr. Cooney, here on Our American Stories.